Well, the other evening, one of our adopted international sons, we used to take in international students, came by and wanted to introduce us to one of the new special friends in his life. I thought that was kind of fun. And so in the process of that, we were sitting around getting to know her and, of course, getting to know what they liked about each other. And then she stopped and asked a question that I just love. She said, so how did you guys get to know each other? And uh, I love that question. So I got a story for you. See, I used to live in Calgary. And as part of my training, I kind of shifted around and a little bit and going to different schools. And so at one point, a friend of mine, Shauna, she was uh, found out that I was planning to go to Briarcrest Bible College to finish up some, some schooling to become a youth pastor. So because she heard I was going there and she had done some study there, she said, hey, when you get there, you need to meet a couple of friends of mine and say hi to them for me. So I was like, okay, well, any friend of Shauna's, they're probably people I should at least check out. Thinking maybe there might even be some girls in that list. So she gave me some names, but there was this one girl whose name I could not remember. I had never heard that name before. And I'm like, okay, I got to remember that name. So I was sitting in my first youth ministry class, sitting in the front row, being the keener that I am. And uh, they started doing roll call. The prof was calling out names. And all of a sudden I heard that name. And I was like, ah, there it is. Doretha Hyde. Ah, I should text. So not wanting to be, you know, too, too anxious or seem appear to be too, uh, you know, nosy. I just kind of glanced over my shoulder and there she was right behind me. Hmm. There was more to her than just her interesting name that was interesting to me. Let's just put it that way. So after class, I introduced myself, of course, under the guise of wanting to make sure that she knew that Shauna had said to say hi. My radar was definitely on. So about three weeks later, I was standing in the lunch line speaking to um, the student body president. His name, his name was Colin. And I said, you know, hey, Colin, I've just been noticing, you know, different girls around the school and stuff. And of course, it's not terribly strange that a guy would be noticing the girls, but I said, there's one that's really kind of caught my eye. She's pretty, pretty amazing. He says, who's that? I says, Doretha Hyde. He says, oh, well, yeah, all the senior guys like her, but she won't let anyone close to her. I turned to him and I said, no word of a lie. I said, you watch, I'll get her. <laughs> the pursuit was on. Now, I won't bore you with all the details, but it included a Sadie Hawkins group date that went bad. It included a, an invitation that... To, to go to a concert that she already had tickets. It included an invitation to go to the Christmas banquet. She already had a date. It included a skating party. It included all kinds of different things. And every time it just seemed like my pursuit was being blocked. I think she just thought I was too loud and obnoxious. But after all, after Christmas, all that changed. We got into conversations and Again, I won't spare you the details. I'll spare you the details because if you want to know the details, you have to take me out for coffee. But on the 21st of January, 1990, we sat across the table from each other in the empty cafeteria at Briarcrest Bible College. And I told her how I felt. I told her about my pursuit. And from there, we've got four kids, 32 years married, and almost three kids, or three grandkids. So something went right there. Honestly, I was relentless in my pursuit, but as I look back, it was the grace of God that carried this through. So again, what does that have to do with Psalm 23, 6? 
Well, let me see if I can, I can explain this too. It says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, first of all, I'm no Hebrew scholar, so I did a bit of work based on the work of others who are. So, the word surely, what does it mean? It's a certainty. As some colloquialism might be, no doubt. Goodness, the word tov, talks about welfare, prosperity, happiness. Seems like another word for grace or blessing. Mercy, unfailing love, faithfulness, kindness. Not receiving what we deserve, but instead the concept of paid in full. That is paid in full. And then follow. This is the one that kind of caught my attention. Shall follow me all the days of my life. As I looked at the word, it talked about the word pursue over and over and over again. The, 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 another word might be to chase. And then, of course, the last part is all the days of my life, in this life and in eternity. So the question was, like, and I want to ask this again, the word pursuit. Last time I preached, I asked the question, does the word pursuit actually, no, not, I didn't ask that question. I asked, is, does the concept that David's talking about here, does it actually ring true in other parts of Scripture? So what's the concept? The concept is that God pursues us with goodness and mercy. Does that ring true? Well, let's take a look, quick look in Scripture. Genesis 3, verse 8 says, talks about where Adam and Eve had been taken, had taken the forbidden fruit, and they had discovered their nakedness and their shame. And what is God doing at that time as a normal part of their existence together? He's looking for them. Verse Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? So, does God pursue? Yes. Ezekiel 34, 11 and 12. At a time when the shepherds of Israel were doing a terrible job of caring for the sheep and were basically using their positions just for their own gain, God condemns their actions and, in contrast, demonstrates that the kind of shepherd that he is. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. Again, does God pursue? Yes. Luke 19, Jesus is walking along through Jericho and an under tall man, we call him Zacchaeus, he's a tax collector, he climbs a tree because he wanted to see who Jesus was. Jesus stops under the, that same tree and engages with Zacchaeus and invites himself over to his house. Zacchaeus is thrilled and his life is transformed, but the religious people, their response, they grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So what was Jesus' response? Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. God pursues. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world. There's that word sent. So that we might live through him. In this and this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and again sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
It's a reaching forward. It's a, an initiating. It's a sending. God pursues. John 10, 10 and 11. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He came for a purpose to lay down his life for the sheep. God pursues with loving kindness and mercy. But what does he want? He pursues and wants us. I remember when we, our kids were little, we would watch the movie Finding Nemo. And there's this one scene that I, I particularly liked because it, it made me laugh. There's these seagulls and they're walking around and doing their thing. And all of a sudden you just hear them. And what are they saying? Mine, 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 mine. Now, I don't want to be sacrilegious, but I honestly think that's the tone by which God pursues us. We are his. He says about us, mine. You are mine. I want you. I want to pursue you. It's a passive pursuit. No, it's not a passive pursuit, but actually it's an active pursuit. And then one more. Luke 15. Another time Jesus is surrounding himself with tax collectors and sinners. And once again, the religious leaders found themselves grumbling. Jesus responds with three stories. One about a lost sheep, one about a lost coin, and one about a lost son. This first one, the lost sheep, seems parallel to Psalm 23. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The shepherd in the parable, he pursues. And that's kind of what Jesus is trying to illustrate here with the grumbling religious leaders. I love this image because the shepherd knows his sheep so well that he knows one's missing. If he has 100 sheep, how do you know that one's missing? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I look at sheep, they don't look that different. And yet the shepherd knows them so well that one is missing and it's on his radar. And he also knows sheep in general, that an isolated sheep is a vulnerable sheep. Granted, the risk is there for the 99 if he leaves, but the greater risk is for the lost one, and the value of this one sheep is enough to take the risks associated. You see, in telling this story, Jesus is assuming that it would be common practice that if you lost one of your sheep, you just go after it. You would pursue it. Then once found, instead of driving it home, muttering under his breath, the sheep gets a piggyback, or I guess we would call that a sheepy back, all the way home. And the shepherd, what's he doing in this parable? He's rejoicing, not just himself, but he is rejoicing and inviting the community for a community celebration as well. Come, my sheep's been found. Come celebrate with me. What does this tell you about the sheep? It tells you that they are precious to the shepherd. But see, there's this funny picture that came into my head when I was studying this. Imagine the shepherd searches hard, comes up after his lost sheep, and starts to celebrate. He's running towards his sheep, bends down to pick that sheep up to put on his shoulders, and all of a sudden the sheep just pulls back and says, uh, sorry, I'm good. 
Really? I, I'm just hanging out here. You can head back to the others if, if you'd like, but, but I'm good. That's ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. I mean, the shepherd pursues the sheep, but I think we just assume that the sheep will just come along and respond to the shepherd who pursues. But the reality is the sheep has to respond to the pursuit of the shepherd in order to gain the benefit that the shepherd offers. It reminds me of a story Doretha told me about uh, before we met, actually, where a gentleman came up to him, a young gentleman came up to her, pardon me, at, uh, at a young adults meeting. And with all sincerity and seriousness, he said, God told me that I'm supposed to marry you. <laughs> I guess you would call that pursuit. Her response, hmm, uh, that's interesting. But he hasn't told me that, so until he does, I think I'm good. See, even in my pursuit of her, when I took the risk and told her how I felt about her, she had to make a decision about how she would respond to my advances or my pursuit. She has to respond. So just to review, the shepherd pursues us. Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He has come to seek and save the lost. But look around. Not all of us respond to the shepherd's love and efforts to shepherd them. We don't. So I found myself asking the question, why, why would I resist following the shepherd? Why would I resist his efforts to pursue me with, with goodness and mercy? Well, I can think of a few reasons, I suppose. One is just simply ignorance. I might not even know that I'm lost. You see, it's like the little toddler who wanders off in the clothing store. I don't know if you guys have experienced that at all, but wanders off in the clothing store and is hiding amongst the racks, thinking that this is a fun game, while the parents are frantically running around hunting for them. <laughs> What's wrong? I didn't know I was lost, and parents do definitely knew. Or, or find yourself asking this question more and more when you ask people, what's the true story or meaning behind Christmas? What will they tell you? Do they know? Do they have any idea whose birthday we're celebrating? Isn't that Santa's birthday or something like that? Or Easter? Isn't that a, a holiday invented by Cadbury chocolates? Bunnies? Eggs? What does that have to do with a death or Jesus or a resurrection? See, those are two prime events in the Christian calendar, and many simply don't know what they're about. And yet they point to the clear need that we have of a Savior. And that that Savior came to save us, to pursue us so that we could be saved. Or maybe somebody grew up in church or attended a youth group when they were younger or went to camp for a couple of weeks and, and you know, prayed the prayer once or maybe even twice or a few times. But you've left it at that. You know, this kind of sense of, I have my fire insurance. Like, Jesus has provided me with that. I prayed the prayer. So that's good enough for me. But the daily following, that what is that about? Maybe, maybe I, do I need to do that? So maybe one of the reasons we don't respond is because we don't know we're lost. Another one is independence. 
this is a little easier to sort of see. I simply don't want anyone telling me what to do. If I respond to the shepherd, there are some boundaries and limitations that come with being a sheep that I simply don't need to apply to my life right now. I am just fine to shepherd myself. So I'm good. Or what about this one? Fear or lack of trust. We talked a bit about that last time I preached. I don't trust that what the shepherd has in mind for me is good. So why would I respond? He may be a shepherd, but I'm not sure if he's a good shepherd. See, for years, I thought that if I truly followed the shepherd, gave myself fully to Jesus, that he would send me to the deepest, darkest corners of Africa, where I would be surrounded by every version of poisonous snake, and I would have to live in the bush somewhere eating locusts and wild honey. Uh, but just think about this for a second. My wife, Doretha, grew up in Africa. Maybe it would have made the pursuit easier. I don't know. Or maybe he might make me sell all my possessions and give the money to the poor. Do I really trust that that's what I want to do and that that's what's best for me? Or another one, shame. I don't want to respond because I'm ashamed. I'm afraid of what the shepherd will discover when he finds me and how he will respond. Because obviously if I'm lost, I've probably wandered away and that might lead to some firm words or discipline. See, like Adam and Eve in the garden, when they, when they knew they had sinned, when they had broken God's law and discovered the consequences, what did they do? They hid. Now, I don't know about you, but shame causes me to hide. And I could tell you story after story after story where I've wanted to hide because I don't want to get in trouble. When our kids were little, we used to want to play hide and seek. So, you know, we'd play hide and seek. So what would we do? Okay, go hide. Sometimes they would literally stand right in the middle of the room, put their hands over their eyes and say, okay, come find me. As if they were trying to hide in plain view. They thought they were hiding, but the reality is they weren't hiding from us. We knew exactly where they are. Newsflash. God already knows. He knew that Adam and he, where Adam and Eve were when he asked, where are you? He wasn't fooled and their hiding didn't help. And he already knows the state of my and your hearts right now as well. So why do we think we can hide from God? But here's the thing. Shame is just that strong and deceptive. So it can definitely be a reason why we would hide and why we would avoid the pursuing shepherd. But what is the cost of resisting the shepherd's pursuit of us. As I was studying, I was looking through different things and I came upon a sermon by a pastor named Colin Smith. And he wrote something here, which he simply called Psalm 23 rewritten. And I found it fascinating. I wanna read it to you. So this is Psalm 23, if we don't respond. I am my own shepherd and I will always want. Sin makes me restless. It keeps me from lying down in green pastures it leads me beside troubled waters. It ruins my soul. Sin leads me in paths of unrighteousness, which I pursue for my own sake. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will have great fear, for sin will be with me. Its guilt and its shame will haunt me. Sin prepares a table before me in the presence of my friends. It promises much, 
but it always disappoints. And my cup is always empty. Surely judgment and condemnation will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the lost forever. <laughs> That's attractive. So maybe you're there now and saying, okay, you've convinced me that resisting the pursuing shepherd may not be the smartest choice I can make. So what should I do in its instead? How should I respond? Well, one of the key ways I believe I, I was supposed to focus this, this sermon is found back in Jesus' parable on the lost sheep in Luke 15. Luke 15, 7 says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Repent. That is not a word that we use very often. In fact, it probably conjures up all kinds of weird ideas. You know, uh, some scraggly-haired street preacher standing down at the at five corners there on, on the corner, standing on his milk crate with his 20-pound Bible in his hand and a sign in his hand that says, in his other hand that says, hey, repent. But what does repent really mean? Is it a, is it a bad word or is it actually a helpful word? Well, repentance in the Bible involves a complete and irreversible change of mind, heart, and actions. Repentance recognizes that our sin is offensive to God. To repent means to make an about-face, heart-directed turn, away from self to God, from the past to a future ruled by God's commands, <clears throat> acknowledging that the Lord reigns supreme over one's existence. In short, I was headed one direction, and I am intentionally turning and heading in another direction. So go back to our lost sheep scene. It's like going from, ah, uh, sorry, I'm good. I don't need your help. You can go back to the others. To, I willingly accept your help, good shepherd. I accept your rescue, and I will follow you back to the flock. But more importantly, when I get there, I will follow your leadership as my shepherd. Okay, but why would I? Why would I repent? Well, one possible reason is maybe I realized the direction I was going before didn't deliver. There was a promise that I thought I could, I could take up, and, and I'm not a real fan of the consequences of the direction I went and the consequences that came from that. Maybe I do need a shepherd after all. Maybe I come to that realization. In Luke 15, the third parable that I was talking about earlier, there's a story of a lost son. And that son, he kind of rebels and asks for his father's, uh, his half of the father's inheritance. And he, his father grants it to him, even though it was a terrible ask. And the son goes off thinking that this is going to be a great thing. And he spends it, the Bible says, in wild living. Then all of a sudden, things turn. There's famine in the land. And his life takes a, a turn for the worse because he runs out of money. And then he finds himself looking for food, looking for a job. He gets hired by somebody who takes care of pigs. And he's taking care of pigs, remember, as a Jewish man, which wouldn't have been a good thing in Jewish law. And he's actually coveting the food that the pigs are eating because that's all he can get. And then it says in verse 17 of Luke 15, what happened? When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? 
but I perish here with hunger. In the New Living Translation, it actually uses the phrase, when he came to his senses. Why would I repent? Maybe I came to my senses about some things that I thought were promises that would be amazing, but just weren't up to what they were billed for. The Good Shepherd, what does he say? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What's the opposite of that? What's the enemy's aim? John 10.10. His job is to steal, kill, and destroy. So the repenting, the turning might simply be, I want to go from being stolen from and the killing and the destroying to life that the good shepherd offers. Or maybe another reason to repent is maybe because I discovered unconditional love. In Luke 19, there's a character, Zacchaeus. We talked a little bit about him before. And Jesus chose a man who the religious leaders thought was just scum, tax collector. He's referred to as a notorious sinner in the New Living Translation. But here is someone in Jesus, the good shepherd, whose love for me is not dependent on my apparent holiness like it seems to be with the religious leaders. That's a kind of love that I can respond to. That's a kind of love of a shepherd who pursues me with his goodness and mercy all the days of my life. That's the kind of love that I, that from a shepherd that I said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's what he says to me. And that's the kind of love from one who lays down his life for the sheep to make that abundant life possible. Zacchaeus, and we'll see this a little bit later, responds to that love, and it transforms his life. So with the time I have left, I want to simply ask the question, how do I repent? If I've decided that it's time to respond in repentance, what does that look like? Well, the passage that we're going to quickly look at is 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 6. First of all, if I want to repent, name your sin. That seems simple enough, but catch this phrase. True repentance involves an awareness of my guilt, sinfulness, and helplessness, and a simple willingness to confess it. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9 says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Pretty straightforward. If I say I have no sin, I'm deceived. But what does verse 9 say? If we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, again, confess, like repent, is not a word that we like too much. It's a scary word. Why? Because if I confess my sins, I have to admit I don't measure up. And if you're like me, my value and worth tend to be tied to what I do, including my ability to be a good person, because if I'm a good person and I never sin, then God and everyone else will love me and consider me more valuable. If I live this perfect life, my value, my price tag goes up. And if I have to admit that I don't have it all together, then my value and my price tag will go down. So there's this book that's been recommended to me by one of my mentors. Oh, and by the way, that is Wes Braun, who's half my age, but amazing man. It's called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools by a gentleman named Tyler Statton. And I just want to read a couple of different passages from that book 
because I think he's got a lot of really important things to say about confession. He says this, how do we take Jesus up on his power to heal? Confession. Confession is how we turn to him, look him in the eye, and acknowledge his presence here with us, not to judge, but to rescue. Or this, one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the modern church is to reimagine spiritual maturity as the need to confess less. The unspoken assumption is, as I ascend in relationship with God, as I kind of get more mature, I confess less because I have less to confess. But true spiritual maturity, though, is the opposite. It's not an ascension. It's an archaeological dig as we discover layer after layer of what was in us all along. Spiritual maturity actually means more confession, not less. Another little section. Confession is two parts. Searching and naming. Searching is God's part. Naming, well, that's our part. And then finally, a doctor can't heal you without an accurate diagnosis. If you show up to a great doctor and describe yourself as just generally sick, they're not going to be able to do a lot for you. To confess is to say, I want to name my symptoms completely and comprehensively because I want healing completely and comprehensively. So the question is, will I name my sin as a step of repentance? But then secondly, it's really important that in the process of naming our sin, we don't stop there because that can be this big guilt trip. So what's the second important thing? Embrace the lavish scope of forgiveness. You see, true repentance takes hold of God's mercy in Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9, we read it before, but let me repeat. If we confess our sins, what does he do? He is faithful. In other words, he can be counted on. And just, just meaning it is within his moral right to do this. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't miss that. If we confess, this is what happens. So that when, when, when that big boogeyman of confession comes and we're like, oh, what happens if, if I confess? This is what happens. He, he, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But then I love the next two verses because they're super helpful for me. Because uh, when, I, when I go to summer camp or whatever, one of the key questions I used to ask and is asked to me often is, well, I've, I've received Jesus' forgiveness. I've invited him into my heart, made him the Lord of my life. But what if I sin again? 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. The New Living Translation again says, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. So just imagine that courtroom scene. There's the Father. He's on the throne. I come before the Father with my sin. I'm confessing. And, and, and Jesus is the defense lawyer. He stands with me. Stands before the Father and says, this is Lyndon, although the Father would know this. And this is what he is confessing. And the Father would know this. Oh, and, and, and by the way, Father, and he would know this too, that thing we did on the cross... This covers this too. 
paid in full. Embracing the lavish gift of forgiveness. That is what was accomplished at the cross. So when I confess, I am actually activating in my life the mercy and grace that has already been secured for me through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. So repentance then doesn't need to be scary, but it can be freeing. Confession doesn't need to be scary, but it can be freeing. And then thirdly, commit to new paths. 1 John 2 verses 4 to 6 tells us about this. But first of all, true repentance results in a radical and persistent pursuit of holy living, walking with God in obedience to his commands. 1 John 2, verse 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Whew, that's not good news. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is a bit intimidating because I think that's, that's the, the crux of why we struggle as Christians. We're like, I can't live up to the expectation. But here's the thing. I want to give you this little handle. The key distinction here is while this feels impossible, the goal is direction, not perfection. What do I mean? Well, the reality is none of us are perfect. And the reality is we need the ongoing confession and the ongoing repentance. But we have that because of what Jesus has done. So when I go to camp, the, the, the image that I try and help the kids understand, it's like taking a shower. So this last week I was there and it was, it was a ton of fun. And one of the talks that I did, I, I just talked about how camp is messy. And so I would go through different parts of the day and I would get myself completely messed. I, I had yogurt in my hair. I had ketchup and mustard all over my shirt. I had pop all over me. I had ashes and from campfire and all kinds of different stuff all over me. And what, it did, what, what that did is nobody wanted to talk to me. Nobody wanted to be close to me. Nobody wanted to hug me. Nobody wanted to shake my hand. So what's the, what's the reality? I could stay filthy or I could go and simply have a shower. And confession is like that in terms of having a shower. When we go before God and we say, God, this is the mess that I'm in right now. And I just want you to know that and I'm turning from it. I want you to wash it off. The answer is always yes when we come in confession. So part of that walking is to surround yourself in a couple of ways. One, surround yourself by saying, God, search me. You have permission to bring to my attention whenever you need to, the things that need correcting, the things I need to confess. But not only that, sharpen your knowledge of God's word. If I'm honest, it's probably a good bunch of us that are pretty biblically illiterate. That's not to shame any of us. But the reality is we don't necessarily even know what God's word says because it's not buried in us. So surround yourself with God's word. Let it deeply affect you. Memorize. Read it. Be reminded of it. Listen to podcasts. Whatever it would take. But then thirdly, let others speak into your life. 
Surround yourself with quality people that aren't just there to say, yep, you're a good guy, but rather who are willing in the right way and at the right time to come to you and say, look, this is a concern. I happen to have a really good friend. His name is Chris. We talk about being wingmen for each other. That's, a, that's just a term to, for accountability. But to have those kinds of people in your life is really, really important. And then as things surface with those three kind of, in those three kind of ways or others, we just confess, shower. And then fourthly, finally, when these things come up, I, I want to encourage us to pull a Zacchaeus. What does that mean? Well, it simply means to make things right with those you've heard along the way. See, in Zacchaeus's case, when Jesus got a hold of him, when Jesus came to his home and it demonstrated that love, that unconditional love, what did he say? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He came to understand that he had done some things that he wasn't proud of. And instead of just sort of standing there, he took steps to make things right. Now, I don't know what that would look like for you. I'm pretty sure I know what that looks like for me in many cases. But to simply ask God, what, what should it be? What are the things that I need to do to make right? That's a part of repentance. So probably when I started this passage, you probably didn't anticipate that we were going to end up at repentance and confession. But the reality is God pursues us. But we need to respond. So I want to leave you with a simple question. How is God calling you to respond to the one who pursues you with his goodness and mercy all the days of your life? Now, that might be a sit down with your journals day after day and just say, Lord, is there anything that you need me to do to respond? An examined life, as it were. It might mean sitting down with friends and saying, hey, I, I want your input. But remember, God's job is to search and it's our job to respond and name and confess. So simply asking, God, what, what are those areas? Would you reveal them to me in love and gentleness, those areas? And when you sense that conviction... Don't let it turn into condemnation, but rather take it as, this is God's indicator that I want to heal you. I want to set you free. And then take practical steps, but just take them one at a time. Be kind to yourself. As you are responding to the Father, to the Good Shepherd, take a step. Take another step. Talk about it. Don't beat yourself up, but recognize that you have a father who pursues you, a shepherd who pursues you all the days of your life. And then one day, and we never got much to this, we will dwell in the house of that Lord forever.